On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the stories of parents learning how to raise a child with a rare disease. Our co-hosts, Sanath Kamar Ramesh and Brittany Ratke, parents of rare disease kiddos who have very different situations. Sanath's son Raghav has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Brittany's daughter Everly has been diagnosed with SET-D5, a mutation that carries with it the potential for a range of complications and even other diagnoses. My name is Kevin Fryert. After 30 years doing research and development at Pfizer, I started Salem Oaks to help patients and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D. Our goal on Raising Rare is to help and lift up our listeners by sharing the unfolding stories of these two families. We also feature the stories of other rare disease families, clinicians, researchers, and industry leaders in the rare disease community. If you'd like to follow these parents' stories, please subscribe to Raising Rare on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Raising Rare. On this episode, we're going to talk to Crystal Barrett O'Laughlin. Um, Crystal's very interesting. She had three brothers who had a rare disease and was a caregiver for them. And now in her life, she's taken to taking care of caregivers. And she started an organization called Angel Aid Cares. And I want to start by asking Brittany how Everly's doing. Today, she is good. We met some challenges last week and spent the majority of the week in the hospital, but we're super glad she's home. She's doing well today, and we got to enjoy Rare Disease Day from home, which was wonderful. So thank you for asking. So Crystal, can you tell us a little bit more about your story and how it led you to create Angel Aid Cares? Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you. Uh, for inviting me today and to the community for tuning in and listening. Um, It's my great honor to provide mental health and wellness services within the rare disease community. And um, I think it's the lived experience that leads to, um, you know, this sort of passion with a purpose. Um, I established Angel Aid in the year 2000 because uh, three of my four older brothers were actually born with a rare genetic disease called MPS, uh, mucopolysaccharidosis uh, type 2 or Hunter syndrome. Um, Several thousand known cases of MPS around the world. And when my brothers were diagnosed um, in the 60s, there were not a lot of resources Um, nor was there a lot of information about the disease itself. And so largely my parents, um, my oldest brother and I, um, you know, we were caregiving out of love um, for three um, individuals, David, Jared, and Randy, that had um, very severe um, physical and emotional needs. Um, My brothers did pass away in the 1980s. Uh, Randy was 12 years old, David was 18, and Jared was 19. 
when they passed. And the next several decades after that, our whole family really was in kind of recovery mode from this chronic traumatic experience that we had um, th- that we had gone through. We had beautiful moments as a family. Um, please, please don't um, feel that it was all tragedy and 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 trauma. Um, our family is very bonded, and in fact, I envision my brothers as. Um, the constellation Orion is the warrior in the night sky, and the the three stars for the sword of Orion are um, a symbol of strength, and I call on my brothers for strength regularly. Um, in fact, the University of Minnesota did a play <laughs> on, um, on my brothers and on Orion that's on the Disorder channel right now. Um, but that is the foundation of why um, we started Angel Aid. Originally, we wanted to cure MPS disease, and so we started out as a fundraising organization. Um, we were able to fund a treatment um, for an FDA-approved treatment for Hunter syndrome. And when um, when I saw that first generation of young men going off to college that would have passed away in their teens, like my brothers, um, that really just 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 made me feel like life had gone full circle and I started looking around at what other needs in the rare disease community existed and and really realized that um, emotional support services for caregivers is um, it's a it's a universal need in the rare disease community all 350 million families need a more emotional support services and so that is the focus of angel aid today Oh, Crystal, I'm just so inspired by everything you have done. And I also did not know about the play because, as you know, I'm in Minnesota. So I'm really (laughs) going to want to check that out. Um, But we talked about it in a previous episode as well about how fortunate I was to attend one of your caregiving conferences last year. And it really, really impacted my life and personally just changed me forever but what is it about rare caregivers and what, what are they to you and why did you decide to focus solely on them and particularly the moms? Well, again, it's that lived experience. And, um, you know, as a, as a child, I didn't necessarily understand all the nuances of what was happening Um uh, emotionally behind the scenes with my parents. And as I grew into adulthood um, and started reflecting back and also witnessing the journey that my own mother, Phyllis, um, had with her grief, as well as my father with his grief, you know, um, it, it, it was this sort of culmination of moments of, of years and years and years of watching the struggle. And, you know, grief is not pretty. It's not a, um, it's not an easy emotion to deal with. It sneaks up on you, um, in when you least expect it. Um, and the human nature to avoid those feelings, those very intense feelings that often arise with grief, you know, lead us to do things that we might not otherwise do. It might lead us to drink too much. It might lead us to escape through other kinds of um, 
tactics like gambling or, um, you know, other, other kinds of addictions. And I've kind of witnessed uh, many of those escape um, experiences within our, our own family. And I just realized that what brings relief, daily relief to a cycle of hope and grief, which is really what this is, like there's moments of hope, there's moments of grief. Even if you're not grieving the loss of of a life, you're actually grieving the loss of an idea, an idea of what you thought motherhood or parenthood was going to look like, an idea of what you had hoped or thought your family life was going to look like, or your own life was going to look like. And so, um, you know, I've just learned through uh, many years of, of exploration um, what brings relief and felt like it was time to bring that relief to the community. Um, I spent 10 years working at IBM, so I know the power of connective technologies like apps and social media and all of these, you know, systems that are in place to, to you know, um, cultivate community and also have worked with large media and entertainment companies like the Walt Disney Company and 20th Century Fox and, and just know that there's these immersive ways, these experiential ways for us to connect with each other. Um, and if you apply those to the backdrop of, um, this experience that we have of living an unexpectedly medicalized life. Um, if we can bring the right technology and bring the, the right immersive, you know, conversations and, and, and we can bring the sensitivity um, and the witnessing tools into the conversations with caregivers and patients and professionals in the community, we can bring a lot of relief today while research and science is doing the good work of finding uh, treatments and cures for these diseases. This is very profound. My journey with grief has been not so, um, I guess, profound as yours uh, because I'm still trying to understand what this means uh, and and you know through therapy and other means I've come across this term called anticipated grief which is the grief of of, of loss of an idea loss of a future uh, that you had imagined and uh, managing that grief has just been not trivial at all uh, my personal journey of managing that grief has been through therapy reading books and uh, sometimes imagining uh, continuously changing my future to match my reality. Uh, but as anyone with uh, caregiving experience knows, your reality changes day to day. Uh, and there is just no way to you know, set a course for a future and reach it. Uh, as much as you know, we all like to think that life is deterministic, especially life with a rare disease kid is completely not deterministic. So I'm very glad that you are bringing all of your experience together to help families today and people like me today who, you know, think we can make it in life, but without the tools that you're and the support that you're providing is uh, probably quite challenging. Um, so I'm really excited for, for all of that work that you're doing. Well, there, there's been some amazing things that have happened um, in the community I, of rare disease. And that's specifically that we are organizing as a community. You know, it used to be that every 
rare disease was sort of operating in a silo. We were trying to raise money for MPS disease. We were trying to provide support services for MPS families. We were lobbying on Capitol Hill for newborn screening for MPS disease, right? And it hasn't been until the last couple of decades that we've, you know, we've got the memo, like we're stronger together as a community. There's enough shared experiences and there's enough shared um, science that if we work as a community, we're going to impart a much bigger um, and accelerated pace of change. And that's what I've sort of been witnessing over over the last you know 50 years that um, that I've been living in this experience is that is it is that we actually are working more together um, than we ever have in the past. And when you put that against the backdrop of of caregiver support and emotional support, um, you know what hit me are the numbers, and I, I call it um, empathy math. Okay, so the empathy math are these aggregated numbers. 350 million families worldwide living with a rare disease. When you multiply that times zero cures, then that equals a global mental health crisis, right? Our experience at the Barrett family is is reflective of our collective experience within the rare disease community. And as I started looking around for the support services, there's incredible resources going towards accelerated science, towards clinical trials, you know, the the 5% of rare diseases that have a treatment. But again, it's going to take some time for this science to to break through. And I do believe it's going to break through in our lifetime. I think we're going to start seeing more and more treatments and even cures in our lifetime through gene therapies and others. But while that's happening, Angel Aid is here to provide daily relief to the emotional experience of of living with, again, these cycles of of hope and grief that our families um, experience. So how do you provide daily relief? Well, um, you provide daily relief through communications. So all our communications channels are constantly encouraging family members and patients themselves and also the professionals that are working in this community to take care of yourself. I mean, these are it, this is not rocket science. We know this. It's all the things that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to sleep more. We're supposed to eat well. We're supposed to take a few moments to have some time and reflection these are like the ancient arts of stress relief, like meditation and yoga. Um, it's the mindfulness um, that brings daily relief to an experience that has a very slow rate of change, right? So um, we, we, we can provide that through communications channels. We can provide that through weekly support groups. So Angel Aid is, you know, hosting um, weekly groups um, every Tuesday and Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific. You can, you know, dial into a, an Angel Aid conversation um, and other uh, family members and parents, primarily mothers, who are going through this experience. 
I say primarily mothers because mothers are the primary caregiver 82% of the time. So our support services um, tend to start with mothers because that's a great entry point into an emotional conversation within the family. Um, but we did launch a men's group this, um, this year in 2023, meets monthly. And then we're able to start hosting our in-person experiences, our wellness retreats, um, starting again this year. We had to pause those because of COVID. But it's this, this daily attentiveness to your own health and well-being, even if it's just a few minutes. And let me just make that point. It's not that you have to ha- take a full hour or an afternoon, because most of us don't have that anyway. We're just talking about... M- you know, a few deep breaths during your morning coffee ritual, or, you know, when you're, when you're dressing for the day, putting on, you know, a positive energy only sweatshirt might sound kind of trite, but every time you look in the mirror, it's a reminder that you're going to keep yourself uplifted that day. And it could be a Green Bay Packers sweatshirt. (laughs) It doesn't have to be, you know, positive, positive messaging, but these are those mindful choices that, um, I'm my own individual person, even as I'm caring for a loved one, or even as I'm caring for myself um, through this affliction, I am a person first, and I'm going to do things that are going to sustain my well-being, my emotional um, well-being first, and then tend to all the other triage list of things that I need to do to tend to the disease. Um, but first comes the heart. As they say in the airplanes, in the in, in case of emergency, attend to yourself first before you help someone else. It's such a true statement for caregivers, especially of of kids and and, and relatives with chronic conditions, because there is just no tomorrow that she, that's different than today, right? It's constantly, you know, struggle after struggle. Um, suffering after suffering that comes along the way, and, and we have to be strong to deal with it. I'm very curious how your men's group responds to all of your efforts, um, similarly or differently to the, to, to, to the mom's group. Uh, I'm curious this, uh, of this because there's a, there's a personality difference between you know uh, dads that that think they can do everything they can, like me, uh, who don't want to accept help. Um, like me, and then um, moms who tell their respective uh, spouses that they need to ex- accept help and, and grow and learn because this is not a journey they can do it themselves. So I'm very curious from your experience how um, the men's group responds to your um, help. Well, it's it's um, it's one of the reasons that we um, introduced a concept um, and then cultivated this concept called rare givers. So the Rare Givers um, Emotional Health Program uh, comes out of this idea that regardless of any disease and regardless of any role around that disease, whether that be a patient, a caregiver, or kind of the concentric circles of support that um, medicalized families need, whether that's, you know, teachers or the fire department or patient advocates um, or, 
you know, doctors and nurses and pharmaceutical uh, representatives that are working in the community. Whether we're a patient or we're a caregiver, and when I say caregiver, it could be a father, it could be a mother, it could be a sibling like myself. We have a lot of brothers and sisters that are offering care within the family, as well as aunts and uncles and grandparents and um, and the like, right? So, so what we were looking for was the common experience of living within this medicalized experience, and then how can we find the 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 path? What is the journey? What is the what are the areas where we all come together? And and because one of the things we hear in our groups, whether it's a mother's group or a men's group, uh, we also host youth. Um, young adult uh, programs. We we have worked with various different um, patient organizations and patient groups as well. But the number we hear a lot of really common things. One, I don't have time for self care. That's <laughs> like universal, right? I don't have time to tend to my own self care, right? Um, and and the other is um, this tendency to focus on disease management, so symptom management, right? And that's a very left brain kind of um, uh, specific type of um, conversation. And what we encourage our groups to do is, okay, um, let's for a moment set the disease at the door which is not easy to do, but let's do that for a moment. And let's step into the um, the emotional feelings that you're having in this experience with this disease, right? And that's not an easy conversation to have either. So to aid the conversations, we developed what's called the rare giver's emotional journey map. And we found six stages or steps possibly that a family member, any um, member of the community may go through, right? And so I'll, I'll just rifle them off and, and they'll they'll ring true for you, um, I think, because just know that we developed the Rare Givers Emotional Journey Map with about 150 stakeholders, doctors, nurses, patient advocates, patients, um, caregivers, mothers, fathers, um, uh, you name it. We, we've had input from, um, from all of the above. And we also started with published research on the emotional impact of rare disease in the family. And um, the first stage is noticing the change. And whether you're noticing the change in yourself, you're noticing something's not quite right in a loved one, that brings up all these emotions in and of itself, right? And, and you know, um, fear is, is, is a primary emotion. What is this? What, what's happening? This isn't normal. This isn't the norm. Um, another stage coming out of that first noticing stage is adjusting to this new reality with or without a diagnosis. So a lot of um, conversation has been around the diagnostic odyssey. Um, we know that, you know, on average, it can take eight years to get an accurate diagnosis. 
But in that period of time, you're in and out of doctor's appointments, you're in and out of um, the hospital environment, you're going through phases of normalcy and um, medical you know, impact and trauma often. And so there's a whole set of emotions about just living with or without, for many people, knowing what is causing this, this problem and this challenge within, within yourself or within a, a loved one. And then the third stage is, um, is these sort of these um, realities of care and really not wanting to necessarily take on the role, um, whether that be the role of a patient, whether that be the role of a caregiver. It's kind of rejecting this notion that there are shifting responsibilities within the family and that these are really uncomfortable um, uh, roles that we now have to take on. And a lot of times, um, especially for caregivers, those roles end up being things like skilled nursing that you never expected um, would be part of a daily routine. And it can be quite, um, you know, it's stressful to, to be thrust into this, into this position, into this responsibility. Um, the fourth stage is full-time care. This is the realities of um, home and work-life balance, right? Um, the realities of the impact on different relationships within the family um, and really hoping for seeking or not finding the support in society and in, in your community. Um, you know, sometimes there's a lot of isolation that comes from living this experience and that creates insecurity and, and other feelings. And so, um, so we want to talk about those and, and, you know, the last two stages are a reality that human nature dictates we don't want to talk about, which is the end of life experience. Um, and for many of the families within the rare disease community, um, the end of life experience is, is a reality. And uh, ironically, in most of the published research that's out there, there isn't a lot of information about the end of life experience in rare disease. Um, if you Google and look in, you know, PubMed and other published resources for military and veterans caregiving, you'll find a lot of information about end of life and about um, these various different stages in general. If you look in um, uh, senior caregiving and Alzheimer's and dementia, there's a lot of awareness and understanding of, of these deep emotional impacts on the family and on caregivers um, specifically. But in rare disease, we really just aren't talking enough about the realities of, um, of this, this end of life experience for some families. And then the sixth stage is, um, it's something that we actually added to the Rare Givers um, Emotional Health Program and to the Journey Map specifically through focus groups. Because what we realized is that life doesn't end um, with the end of life. And there is, there, there is a legacy 
that is um, taken forth into humanity. And the Barrett family, you know, our family, my family, my legacy is a, a really um, poignant example of that, that that my mother didn't know she was a carrier of this rare disease. And she and my father had five children and they lost three of their five children to this rare disease. And then here, you know, I come along and I'm a carrier of the disease. And so it's still very ever present in my life. And as I was going to, you know, start a family and, um, and, you know, even find a mate, find a husband that would be willing to go down this journey with me. There's lots of considerations for carriers. When, when do you tell someone in the dating cycle that you, you know, carry a rare fatal genetic disease with no cure? I mean, it's, these are, these are deep emotional considerations. And, and then Jim and I, um, we've been married 18 years now and we, um, we have a beautiful daughter, Chloe, She's 16, and um, and and Chloe is also a carrier of of MPS disease. So she's going to have her own journey. So these are generational traumas. These are generational legacies, and there's an amazing opportunity to find meaning in the loss. So if we're not talking about the grief side of our community's experience, we're missing an opportunity to actually talk about the perspective and the wisdom that comes from that experience. And, um, and so that is the sixth stage is survivorship and finding meaning, um, in this experience. And, um, I've been talking for a long time now, so I'll pause, but, um, but those are the things that we talk about in the group, Seneth. <laughs> Back to your original question. <laughs> long time coming. Um, we explore all of those things. I was mapping my journey to to your emotional uh, journey map, and it just it's so precise um, in, in how it aligns, and, and and the inflection points in my journey are captured in the different phases of your of your map precisely um, because when I went from someone who did not know what was happening to my son to someone that had a diagnosis. Um, my reactions to the situation changed. Um, my actions were more oriented towards finding a treatment, finding a cure, than towards managing his quality of life. Um, and as I'm maturing in that process as a caregiver and getting more deeper understanding of the caregiving journey, my focus is now shifting more towards quality of life. And uh, God forbid if I if I if I go to the next stage of you know uh, the end of life uh, situation, it's going to be a very different conversation and in a in a different mental and, and physical state that I will have no preparedness to tackle. So I'm I'm glad this journey exists. I'm going to read more about this, uh, but I'm curious, Brittany, have how does how does your journey map to this to this map? Yes. And I, I kind of, so I got a head start on this because I got to do this one of, through one of the groups. And so about six months ago was the first time that I had eyes on this emotional journey map. But it's also interesting because six months is a long time in the rare disease world. So I feel like I'm at a different spot than I would have been six months ago. And I found that to be really interesting. But one thing that stuck out to me is when I think about just us being in the hospital last week 
and you kind of are constantly pivoting sometimes between each step. And so we may have all of these things where we're noticing changes and something isn't right and you're in that fearful stage. Um, but you might get another diagnosis in the middle of that. You might, you know, you might not be getting the treatment you think you need. So you're kind of pivoting between, I feel like, steps one through three at times. Um, and I found that to be really fascinating. But as a whole, I'm just really impressed how it aligns with our journey over the past four years. And it's also a resource that we can use when we go to our complex team because they need to have more resources available to families like us and caregivers like us because there's just not enough out there. So we have actually printed some of these out and given them to our Mayo team. And I'm trying to get them to push as resources because I just think there's not enough out there right now. So that's basically how it's aligned for me. Oh my gosh, you've got me in tears over here. I'm so, that's exactly what we hoped as the coalition um, when we published the Rare Givers Emotional Journey Map. Um, if you're wondering where to find it, it's at raregivers.global. And the whole point was that it's free and you can download it and you can use it to describe to your spouse or your doctor or your parent or your child or who, you know, your best friend. Oh my gosh, look at this. This is where I am right now, right? This is so hard. And, and, and just having the opportunity to orient yourself and be witnessed in that process. And, and I think at the end of the day, you know, we are all born and we are all going to leave this earth. And it's our opportunity to, to, to make a mark, to make a, to make an impact to, I, I always say what, you know, cause I, I, I used to ask like, why, why did this happen to our family? I'd have these conversations with God and everybody else, you know, what, 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 why are we suffering in this way? And, and the, kind of the existential sense that I've been able to make of it all is it actually isn't about me. It isn't about us. It's about us being there for the next generation, for the next person that we talk to. It, you know, the perp I say the purpose of suffering is to sow the seeds of empathy. And you can't be empathetic to sort towards someone if you haven't had like a lived experience of it, right? And so so if if that's the point of of creating these tools and making them publicly available and making them free so they're not behind some sort of, you know, guardrail somewhere, you know, some sort of um that you know only available to certain people, then you're changing the collective consciousness. You're changing the conversation for everybody. And you're acknowledging the full experience. And, and survivorship and finding meaning is important because it reminds you that you actually are your own soul. And you have to tend to that soul, right? So that you can, you can, you know, make the most of this life 
um, on the planet. So I'm just thrilled. I'm so happy that you, you know, that you've downloaded those and you've shared them with the Mayo team. And I encourage anybody that's listening to, to do the same, you know, and, and certainly reach out to me and let me know that you did it or tag us on social media or something like that. Like we're, we're building a movement here, right? <laughs> we're, we're sort of changing, um, changing this experience by just, um, acknowledging the reality of, of, of this lived experience together. Uh, Crystal, your, your quest for finding meaning and purpose in life reminded me of a quote from a book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning uh, by Viktor Frankl. Um, uh, this is very profound. I mean, he says, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. I think you you found that meaning through through your work at Angel Aid, and and not only that, you have really helped caregivers like me and Brittany find our meaning and our our, our way in this really dark forest that that we're walking through without you know any guidance or understanding of where we are at. All we can just see is, is darkness and trees around us. Uh, and so, thanks for providing this map. And with the with, with what Brittany did, I also had this idea that I should start sharing this journey map with my doctors too, um, because you know I have this experience with Raga where there are two different orthopedic surgeons for you know one for hip, one for one for one for spine. Uh, one of them is awesome. Um, they very they're very emotionally tuned to us as a family uh, when they give suggestions or, or, or kind of interpretation of, of his results. They are very sensitive of where we are in our, in, our, in our emotional journey as a family. And so they never, every time we go there, it's a scary appointment, but we, we come back more reassured, right? Even though the outcome hasn't really changed, we are more reassured. But the other doctor is more a scientist or, or, or an analytical person, right? They they just verbatim explain what's going on, and that tears us into pieces. And that is probably because they don't understand, from a caregiver standpoint, the emotional journey that we are going through and the different phases we are in. And so when they give us a new diagnosis, we are not in that accepted, we are not past the acceptance phase. We are just listening it for the first time, and we are trying to resist every inch of what they are trying to pushes towards. And I think this is going to be a huge benefit for doctors to understand the journey that people go through in addition to caregivers themselves. So thank you for putting this together. Absolutely. Well, I, I wish I could take all the credit, but I can't. Um, as I mentioned, there is a coalition behind this effort. And I realized after several years of kind of waving the white flag um, towards mental health and, and emotional support services that um, Angel Aid as an organization can't do it alone. We have got, <laughs> there's so much need. I mean, it's our stated goal to support 3.5 million caregivers by 2026. And that's a huge number, but that's only 1% of the community, right? So, so in order for us to actually impact the entire community, um, we need to develop these tools. And, and the best way to develop a, a piece of strategy work like this or, or a tool um, like this is to do it in a coalition of people that care. And so there's lots of individuals like I said, about 150 individuals that weighed in on creating this tool. We're constantly evolving 
and re-releasing um, new versions of the tool. And we can only do that with support of um, sponsorships. So, you know, I'd love to to thank our sponsors, um, IONIS and SCN2A organization, the Indo-US Rare team, the Assistance Fund, Horizon, um, Microsoft, Remember the Girls, Sanofi, BioChrist, and the Ehlers-Danlos Society. Those uh, entities have, you know, backed us um, so that we could make this available and build the, t- the website, and make it downloadable and free and really excited for the next version, which will be a, an immersive experience where you can actually double click into each of these stages and see videos and um, excited to also uh, release versions in other languages. We just released the Spanish um, version, which will be used at our first Spanish-speaking um, Rare Givers Wellness Retreat in Mexico City next week. Um, we're working in Australia um, to release this um, countrywide, and we'll be hosting our first men's retreat in um, at Barrett Family Ranch here in the summer. So, Sineth, you'll have to <laughs> take a look and see if maybe we can have you out. <laughs> Thank you, Crystal. So I'm seeing a really awesome theme of community support and action. And as I mentioned, I was fortunate enough to attend one of the retreats myself. And I personally just want to thank you for not only being here, but all that you have done for Rare Givers. For me, as I mentioned, super impactful at the time I was last year when I did the retreat. And It was truly life-changing, and in return, I have hundreds of people that are now support and friends. I haven't even actually met them in person, but they are truly a part of this army behind us, so I truly want to thank you for everything you have done and continue to do, and for that little bit of hope and support and everything you continue to do. So thank you so much. Thank you, Crystal. Again, I think the, the the resources you've put together are going to be not only useful for me, but also for so many other people that I know of. So I'm already making a list of people to send this, send this map to so they can start getting it up to speed. Thank you for putting this together. Amazing. I'm so glad. Well, as I said, um, we're, we're here. We're here with open arms. 24-7, you can come to angelacares.org and just click join our community. And that moment is when you're stepping into your own um, emotional support and your own self-care. That's a brave moment. It's a simple action, but it is a brave moment. And um, one of the things we're really sensitive to is that, you know, caregivers and patients and professionals, they don't have a lot of time. And everybody likes to learn and interact differently. So whether it's just, you know, reading a social post or um, looking at the newsletter or watching a video on our YouTube channel, or it's a little deeper of an interaction coming to a support group or joining one of our virtual or in-person wellness retreats or using the Rare Givers Emotional Journey Map as a tool, all of those are available um, we always have uh, opportunities for, for you to connect with each other 
that's what this is about. It's about the community supporting each other. And we're just here to provide, you know, the open arms um, for that support to happen. So thank you very much. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4.org on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. The Set D5 community is currently getting organized. We will let you know where you can donate soon. You can continue to follow Raghav and Everly stories next time on Raising Rare.